Hello, you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We're talking about it with the tremendous Rain DeGray. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a 2004 American drama film written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michel Gondry. It stars Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, and also features an ensemble supporting cast, including Kirsten Dunst, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, and Tom Wilkinson. Rain DeGray describes herself on her website as a writer, a podcaster, a sex educator, and a kinkster. I met Rain at a Risk storytelling event, immediately told Sarah about Rain, and we were like, we need to have her on this show. Rain's the best, and I'm so glad she brought us this title, perfect for Valentine's Day week. How's it going out there, everybody? How are you doing? Why don't you let us know over on Twitter or Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. And, of course, don't forget, never forget, that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or via Apple Podcast subscriptions. Thank you for helping make this whole thing possible. We appreciate you so, so much. Those who support us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions get bonus episodes, We just put out a bonus episode about Megan and the menu, and our bonus episode for the month of February will be about Sex and the City Season 1, which I'd never seen before and have finally seen. But we're talking about why this series is important for Sarah, what it has to say overall uh, then and now, and what it has to say and what our relationship with each other has to say about friendship broadly. So we think that there's something in here that'll appeal to you no matter what your position on Sex in the City. So hopefully you will join us for that. But thank you so much to everyone who makes the show possible by supporting us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. Don't forget, you can find a playlist of songs inspired by this episode in the show notes. These are songs that come to mind when Sarah and I think about the conversation we had or think about the movie itself. So please check that out. Put that in your ears. Why don't you? And I think that's it for this introduction. Let's get right in to the meat of the matter. Let's talk about Joel. Let's talk about Clementine. Let's talk about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello. Hello. Bonjour, Alex Steed. Oh, I get it, because he's French. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the director's French. I forgot. I hate his French movie. I hate his hot people movie. And I love this movie because it's about, well, an American and a British lady, but people falling in love on Long Island. And we are joined by Rain DeGray. And I am so excited to have Rain here. Rain, I met uh, at a Risk storytelling event, and I was so taken by Rain's story and and ability to keep a crowd on her side (laughs) that I was like, we should talk about movies. Rain, tell us about yourself. Hi, I am a podcaster, an advice columnist, and an educator. I uh, have been a front-facing internet person for about 15 years now, and I would say probably one of the highlights of my career as an autistic person with severe ADHD and multiple concussions without a college degree, I did manage to lecture at Harvard. Ah, fantastic. What was the subject matter? 
basically every year in November, a number of colleges have sex week. Mm. I am a sex ed educator, and I've been teaching classes for 15 years now on a wide variety of subjects. And they will bring in uh, experts in the field. So I was able to come in and not only, you know, address sex ed questions, but it's not just sex. Sex is, unless you're an asexual individual, it's one of the uh, universal threads that we all have. It's a very Mm. intimate and vulnerable thing. Mm. And a huge part of effective sex is communication. Mm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of actually what my classes are is about effective communication. And a lot of the techniques and stuff that I apply doesn't just apply in your sex life, but it applies in your day-to-day life with interacting with other humans. Mm, Excellent. So before Sarah gets into taking us on a journey through the plot of this movie or explaining what the movie's about, Rain, can you tell us about what your relationship with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So you might notice I am wearing a bright orange hoodie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I actually have a story about this. So I grew up in a commune with no TV, no radio, no newspapers, no movies. And I don't have a lot of the cultural references that people my age have. So the amount of movies that I've seen are more limited. But the ones that I have seen have huge significant impact to me where they Mm -hmm. genuinely mean a lot. And there are some movies where you watch them and you never see them again. And there are other movies Mm -hmm. where you're like, this has changed me as a person. Mm -hmm. And I describe it as getting high, like Mm -hmm. dead sober. You can walk into a theater and open up your mind and listen to what these directors and this actor and the cinematographer and the composer has to say, and it changes you as a person. And the movies that I recall walking away and getting high from are Natural Born Killers, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Mm. and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, (laughs) where I walked away from this film and I came out of the theater high, like levitating. Mm. And I happened to go to a CVS. If you've ever been to the CVS, like, clothing section, there's, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. three. Th- it's, like, moo-moos and, like, T-shirts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And right there, having just exited the theater 20 minutes earlier, was the exact same bright orange hoodie that Clementine mm. was wearing. Mm. And it was, like, the universe put me in this CVS 20 minutes after my mind being cracked open with this movie. Here is the hoodie. And I purchased it on the spot and I've had it ever since. (laughs) So Sarah Marshall. Yes. Do you mind taking us on a journey uh, and just telling us what this movie is, what it's about, sort of what happens in the plot. And then after you do that, we'll, uh, we'll unpack. Yes. Um, And I will also say that my relationship to this movie is that I saw it on my first date Many eons ago. Your very first? Yes. What? Uh Uh-huh. It kind of set the tone. So we'll get into that. Oh, my God. So yours, this is so telling. Yours was this. Mine was Boogie Nights. Rain, what Uh was yours? I can't believe yours was Boogie Nights. (laughs) Really set me up for the rest. My first movie on a date. You know what? It was dazed and confused. Oh, sweet. That's a fucking sweet movie. (laughs) These are all great movies. I'm impressed that no one saw a bad movie. Yeah, that's great. 
All right. So Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is about a man named Joel, played by Jim Carrey. It kind of at the beginning of him, well, he'd done Man on the Moon, so it wasn't unusual for him to do dramatic roles, but he's being like low key in a way that's kind of freaky. Mm-hmm. I was actually in Man on the Moon. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The crowd scene, the wrestling scene. I lived in LA at the time and nice. they put out a call for extras. That's amazing. That's amazing. So yeah, we have Jim Carrey. He's all sad. He doesn't know why, but he like jumps trains on the LIRR and goes out to Montauk for the day. And he's like, why am I here? And then he says something I've never forgotten and think probably every fucking time I've been on a beach <laughs> in 20 years, which is sand is overrated. It's just, it's just tiny, tiny rocks. rocks. Yes, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I just read Woman in the Dunes and I took... As a result of having just read that, I took great offense at that line because the character oh, yeah. from Women of the Dunes talks about like why sand is actually incredible because it maintains a uniformity that almost nothing else in nature in solids yeah. maintains. And he just went All on right. and on in specifically as a specific <laughs> kind of place that beetles are able to live, which makes it remarkable to this character. But I did appreciate that he's it's a sign of depression. Maybe he hasn't read Women. <laughs> in the dunes <laughs> if you've ever had too much sand up your ass this is fair you're like this is a bunch of rocks i have packed in my nether regions and it's quite uncomfortable so i think both points are valid yay for the beetles and also sandpaper up my ass it's a complicated film full of complicated truths yes yeah it's very it's very complicated for sure so he's in montauk in winter where i've been And which is just like a fascinatingly desolate place. Like nobody is there. I have recurring fantasies that sometimes Billy Joel just goes and plays piano at a bar in Montauk (laughs) when he doesn't want to be recognized (laughs) to get back to his roots. And Jim Carrey in abandoned Montauk keeps running into this pretty stranger with orange. No, she has blue hair at this point. Blue hair. Blue ruin. Blue ruin. Yes. But an orange sweatshirt. And they like keep running into each other and he's very reserved, but she's very forward and introduces herself on the train. And then they have this great drink together. And then she's like, let's go to the Charles River in Boston, which I love. (laughs) She actually proposes marriage. There you go. She's like, let's we should so get married. We're going to get married. Yeah. And then she's like, call me when you get home. And he calls her and she's like, did you miss me? And he's like, I do. And she's like, we're married. Honeymoon on ice. And so they go and lay on the river and everything's so great. And then his friends are like, oh, by the way, I'm David Cross. And also you did just pay to have this woman wiped from your memory and you just broke up after being together for two years. Yes. And this is all a prologue. It's like, and then 18 minutes in, you hit him with some credits. I love any movie that goes on for a long fucking time before we see a title on screen. Love it. Yeah, and this is a movie that kind of takes place in the extended John Malkovich universe where it's another movie that's like, what if there was a sort of like metaphysical service that existed in a boring, badly lit office in New York. I love it. So basically, we go back now for the body of the movie and look at Jim Carrey. He has a fight with Clem where he's basically like, you get people to like you by having sex with them. And then she's just like, fine, fuck it. I'm going. I'm having my memory wiped of you. 
She's very, very drunk, by the way. Yeah. A little bit of a drinking problem. <laughs> and she had just crunched his car. She did crunch it. I would be irked. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about this movie is that it doesn't give you a couple where you're like, oh, no, they have to stay together. They're so perfect for each other. But they broke yes. up over a very contrived misunderstanding as if yes. we're running out the clock until the finale. That, yes. And in this case, you're like, ah, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is time to call it, right? <laughs> right. It's really great to be introduced to these people in like a hopeful moment and then immediately thereafter in a devastating moment. Yeah. That's what I liked about it. I'm not super into rom-coms. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it's the thing is that like romantic comedies are kind of like emotional porn. Yeah. And they sell a, a very unrealistic, like, we're never going to live up to these romantic comedies. And I don't want to pattern or, or aspire or dream for something that is totally unachievable. Mm. And these people are super fucked up. They're flawed. They're humans. They're people that you could imagine running into. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't set up this holy grail relationship of like, that's what we should aspire to. It's like, these are fucked up people <laughs> that have hurt each other, but there's mm -hmm. still hope. They still want to try. And I want realism. And when I watch films where it's like, everyone always says the right thing and the lighting's always perfect and there's never any awkward pauses, that doesn't feel realistic to me. Yeah. And they don't take place in Montauk. Like <laughs> right. That's the that's kind of why it's perfect that it takes place there is that it's like just, it's a regular, it's a place. It's not a romantic place. Right. The weather in this movie is a huge character. There's snow, yeah. there's rain. That's a great point. When you look at how much he played with the rain and the snow and like this really grim weather that was setting a, an entire energy to mm -hmm. the overall film that was point of it you didn't want mm -hmm. this like sunshine and like oh we've got perfect bodies in bikinis look at our abs look at this beautiful sunshine no yeah. it was miserable people bundled up in the snow <laughs> on tiny rocks. <laughs> and Kate Winslet never really being dressed warmly enough. <laughs> never. <laughs> Not once. <laughs> Not once. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. So we watch uh, Jim Carrey then realize, or Joel, realize that Clementine has gone in and had her memory wiped. And he's like, all right. How, why don't I have my memory wiped? And he goes and we meet our adorable cast of lacuna. Fuck-ups. Of fuck-ups, <laughs> totally. So we have Mary Svevo played by Kirsten Dunst, who's like, I think this is my favorite role of hers. It's so, this, yeah, this is so great. A fantastic Kirsten Dunst role. Yeah. We have our memory wipe technicians played by Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood, who are like both just creeps <laughs> and then we have tom wilkinson as our memory wipe daddy mm. the closest to a daddy but i've got some thoughts i'm going to share with that when we wrap yeah and also i looked up the woman who plays his wife and she just won a tony last year so good for her i recognize her from something and uh, she she whatever i've seen her and i have warm feelings about but i don't know what it is <laughs> She's one of those actors who like is winning Tonys and then in movies she's like, woman. <laughs> I mean, the, the scene that she's given is really intense and you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. but like it's only just yes. like a couple. You can have them. Right. Yes. So, yeah. So basically, Joel is having his memory wiped and he's sort of going through this like wild, lucid dream fantasia, which is kind of like if you took 
there's a part at the end of being John Malkovich, which we should really do an episode yes, about absolutely. sometime, where they're like running around in John Malkovich's subconscious <laughs> because they've like gone a layer too deep. And they're like running through his like childhood memories and his like shameful, like traumatic memories and stuff. And I feel like Charlie Kaufman, Kaufman, Kaufman was like, I liked doing that. Let's do that more. <laughs> and then kept saying yes to that for his entire career. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. And this is like a sweet spot where it's like, yeah, this is just enough. Yeah. <laughs> so he and his memories of Clementine are running around kind of in his brain. And then he's like, wait a minute, I don't want you to get wiped. This is, I can't, I have to keep this. Like, I, I don't want to do this actually. And so they're like trying to find places in his memory to hide where they won't be wiped by the, remem text and ultimately like they can't make it and also there's all these little fuck ups where or there's at least like the huckleberry hound thing where they like take what was originally one of his memories and like leave it as one of her memories mm. and stuff like that but they like both forget everything but with this kind of somehow an imperative to like they both kind of know they have to get back to montauk they like kind of remember that they met there and then they meet there and they realize what happened and they're like, well, whatever, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a rival, but for rom-coms. Yeah. And that's my summary. And they disappear in the snow of Montauk. I love it's like a rival, but for rom-coms. That's amazing. Right? Yeah, so true. Okay, so Rain, we, you're a, a super fan of this movie. Where should we begin to dive in? Well, I mean, I say we should dive in from the very beginning because it's interesting to me because it tricks you. Mm -hmm. One of my pet peeves, and it wasn't discussed when this movie was done, 2004 is when Charlie Kaufman and uh, Michelle Gonnery won an Academy Award for the screenplay. Back then, we weren't discussing the trope of the manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. And when this movie starts out, it's a little manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. And what I love is that it tricks you. So you're like, okay, here's this reserved dude. Supposedly the two personality traits that Joel, Jim Carrey's character has is avoidant personality disorder. Mm. And Kate Winslet, Clementine, she has borderline personality disorder. Mm. So the, the trope of here's this rather unexceptional dude, but then along comes the hot, magical, whimsical chick that's going to free him from everything. And like, she's just throwing her genitalia at him. And it's like such an appealing trope for like, I can just be an average sad sack dude. Mm. And the manic pixie dream girl sees me on the train and can't stay away from me and just throws herself at me and is all up on me. Yeah, of course yeah. that's going to happen because I'm the main character. And I'd like to say that this movie redeems itself. Mm. So mm -hmm. when you start out and you're like, okay, it's a rom-com and he is a, a rather unexceptional dude and just has this hot pixie, just like, you're fascinating. Hey, how's it going? And you're like, oh no, not, not. And then the movie starts to unfold and you're like, wait a minute, wait one gosh darn moment. <laughs> There's a lot more happening mm -hmm. than this rom-com that you're expecting. So when when you like see this opening sequence, you're like, OK, so this is like a whimsical alternative rom-com. And then it, but you're like, this is also a Charlie Kaufman film. So like, when is it going to get weird? Mm -hmm. And then shit starts getting weird. Mm -hmm. 
And it's like, you've run into these characters. You know people like this. This seems totally plausible, but also dialed through the Charlie Kaufman lens, where it's just uh, just a little surreal, but also approachable. And Sarah, I'm curious about, about your take on this, particularly just knowing, again, you saw this at 15 in the theater in a date. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything Rain's saying with regard to like wanting realism more than I want sort of some Hollywood idea of whatever. But I think also when this came out, the Charlie Kaufman thing was, st- it wasn't new, new because a couple of movies had been out, but it was still whimsical and surreal. And like, I think it like yeah. it felt big and outside of reality, but also somehow got us closer to reality. How did this strike you when you first saw it as a kid? Like, do you feel like it was speaking to something you already knew about or was it a whole new thing? Well, I really loved being John Malkovich. And then I remember seeing Adaptation and being like, "Eh, it's pretty good. Mm. (laughs) And kind of having this feeling of like being attached to like Charlie Kaufman as a project. Yes. And as like a creator I was interested in and coming in with this attitude of like, thrill me. (laughs) And feeling like... It was just so much more overtly about kind of ideas of romance and love and relationships than anything had been before. Because the previous movies were like really about creativity. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a love interest character. But she's not the focus as much as the idea of like, what if you could take over John Malkovich's body or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and make him your puppet? And I mean, just I don't know, it's funny to me that I haven't watched this movie in the intervening almost 20 years. And I think it's just because I, I felt like I remembered it so well. Mm-hmm. It's one of those movies that I have kind of this like elevated, highly specific memory mm-hmm. of that feels like a time capsule of a moment. Mm-hmm. And this felt like it was sort of like, so long, happy trails with the relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's something about at least the first th- being John Malkovich uh, adaptation and this are all about either getting far outside of your body, spending time in mm-hmm. another body, hmm. spending time in hmm. your brain. I think like, yeah, they're they're all about like getting far outside of yourself or getting really, really into yourself. Rain, as as someone who, again, this is a movie that you felt like you had a spiritual experience with, did either of those things speak to you? I would actually have to say no, because I also mm. got high off Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and spent <laughs> the next hour doing kung fu poses on top of cars, you know, and like mm-hmm. I did and natural born killers. Like I walked out levitating off the ground mm. and you mm-hmm. can you can definitely say that eternal sunshine, the spotless mind, natural born killers and crouching tiger, hidden dragon were very different films, but they all mm-hmm. had a, a very spiritual transcendent effect on me. Mm. Huh. So I wouldn't say it was necessarily the surrealism or getting out of your body. Like, I can't unpack why three very different films and three very different genres would all have that profound, undeniable effect on me. But they all did. Mm. And I think more what got to me with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind wasn't even the surrealism. It was these flawed people in dirty, cold kind of ramshackle circumstances that still had hope Hmm. and didn't give up and weren't holding themselves up to this like perfect Hollywood abs and giant tits ideal. And they're like, no, we're Mm -hmm. flawed, fucked up humans, 
but we still want to try. Mm. And even though we've seen, like, when you hear the tapes and you hear, like, the absolute worst things that you can say in a relationship, when you start a relationship, there's so much hope with someone. Mm-hmm. And then you become incredibly vulnerable and intimate with another person. And they they see all of your flaws and your fears and your weaknesses, and you can really injure someone. There's very few mm-hmm. injuries we get, like the injury we get in a relationship with someone when the person that we are the most vulnerable with goes to hurt us. Mm-hmm. And you hear the tapes on both sides. And Joel's like, Clementine's a lush and she's irresponsible and her frantically changing hair colors are just ridiculous and it's it's just a persona and a character and clementine's like joel is just a sad closed off sack and he won't communicate and they hear the worst of each other in a way like when you're listening to the audio tapes like it hurts Mm -hmm. and i think one of the reasons this film resonated with me so much is at the end they're like it doesn't matter like we're still gonna try we haven't lost hope Mm -hmm. fuck it Mm. It doesn't need to be perfect, yeah. but let's let's go for it anyway and see what happens. What's the worst that's going to happen? It's not going to work out. Obviously, there's something here, and that's worth trying. I think mm. the core of this movie is a deep hope buried under alcoholism and crunched cars and constant snow and, and confusion <laughs> and, and an absence of daddies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the hope is the beating heartbeat of this movie, mm. and that's what resonated with me. Hmm, that's lovely. I mean, and this has never occurred to me before, but I love that there's even kind of a motif of like, we have two separate characters who fall back in love with the people that they had. I mean, three, because Joel and Clem mutually do. So like, it's like, well, the treatment doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. You can see in, in the in the office where it's like, you can only come in three times in one year. We're not going right. to w- wipe your brain for the fourth time. And it's like, Oh, like, you know, my child has died. I've gone through a breakup. My pet has died. I'm going to do this magical cure and I'm not going to have to address the trauma. It's just going to be taken away. And it's like, that doesn't actually work. (laughs) You can't bury it. You can't conveniently just shelf it. And I I think that's one of the other themes is that the trauma is there and you can't conveniently Mm -hmm. just lock it away and be like, I'm not going to address that. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. The thing that you brought up earlier, Rain, that I'd, I'd love to speak to you because I found it embarrassingly resonant is that, you know, to your point, this movie comes out in 2004. The term Manic Pixie Dream Girl is is mm-hmm. coined three years later in response to Elizabethtown. I didn't realize that that was the response to the movie was, uh, which I saw in the theater as well. Another Kirsten Dunst film. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Starring America's Sweetheart, Kirsten Dunst. I relate, and you, you have more sort of clinical assessments about what these two are going through, but I love that this is a romantic comedy, heavy quotes. This is romantic comedy about a deeply depressed man who meets a woman and later in the tape we hear him say essentially this thing that she's warned him about which is a lot of people project some hope of salvation onto me Mm -hmm. and he says it in the tape meaning this happened he says this before all of this is happening in his memory he Mm -hmm. says in the uh, tape that she essentially does that as an illusion so he like attributes it to being her fault in his in the time that's led him to to, uh, raise his memory and then in his memory of meeting 
meeting her initially, he remembers that she has warned him that this is a thing that people do often. And I have for fucking sure been in a manic depression and met people and then been like, this is the this is the way out. This is the ticket out. I don't know what you're talking about, Alex. You don't know what that's like? (laughs) I don't know. I have no, never in my life. You then now all you're doing is you're dropping a bomb on your are you because you Mm -hmm. think you're liberated and you're dropping a bomb because you're only going to let everyone down. (laughs) Well, as long as you can kick the can down the road for another three months, am I right? (laughs) Then I can get out and find some other thing. (laughs) It's fucking fucked. Our brains are fucked. But I love I Mm -hmm. love that this is a thing. And especially with the layers, because like we see the order of operations. It's like, again, he thinks that this is a spell that she puts on people and she has been very clear up front that this is a thing that she sees happen with people sometimes and I, mm-hmm. I love that I thought that, that like it took me a while to get to it because I was texting Sarah I was like I don't think that this movie likes women very much and then I got to that point I was like wow that's actually super super interesting that like if you play mm-hmm. that out in a timeline you realize that he had all the information he needed and he switched whose fault it was in his brain mm-hmm. resonant Painfully. Huh. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And uh, I have I've been uh, in a situation mm-hmm. my entire life mm-hmm. where people try to make me the manic pixie dream girl mm. and people believe I'm going to be the magic thing that's going to fix them. And this isn't in any way trying to sign arrogant because it's not a job assignment I'm interested in. <laughs> but my entire life, I've had people that are like, you're my soulmate. You are the one. You are the person that is going to fix me. You're incredible. And I'm like, I I don't want the job. Mm -hmm. I'm literally in no way interested. But like what I like about Clementine is she's like, no, I I won't be your manic pixie dream girl. I mean, obviously, anyone who's listening to this podcast who then goes to Google my name will have a better understanding of why I've been approached my entire life. It's like, don't worry, baby, you'll never have to work again. Move in with me. I'll take care of you. I've got millions of dollars. And it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't work on me. It's, it, it is a, a core of my wiring that I lack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never believed that anyone out there is going to fix me or save me or salvage me. Or if I'm in a depression, that there's just my magic puzzle piece out there that I only need to find and click with and I will be made whole. Mm. I deeply believe in working on my shit and having my shit together. And every single day I wake up and I take ruthless personal inventory and I ask myself, Rain, how can I be less of an asshole today than I was yesterday? <laughs> Great way to frame that. <laughs> and I'm working on my shit, you know? So I've, I, I do know that people are like, if I can just get in the relationship, it'll save me, it'll salvage me, that other person. Mm. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I want a teammate. Mm -hmm. I want someone that's just as equal with me and we're trying to move forward. But having someone that thinks I'm going to save them or looking for someone to save me from myself. No. Right. Because if you if you are him in that case and what again, what she's warning against, like you are not seeing the other person like you're just seeing a projection Mm -hmm. that you've created as an as an antidote in your brain. And so you're never actually seeing that other person. Mm. Well, very interesting to me, at least Joel's whole thing is that he's closed off. He's like, I'm not interesting. I lead a very boring life like there's nothing exceptional about me. But there's this entire undercurrent of his compulsive art and writing that he's doing. And if you take the moment to look through the art that he's doing, 
it's jacked up shit <laughs> right by his front door. There's a photo of a fan covered in blood, like blood is dripping <laughs> off the fan. So even though he's saying out loud, I'm very boring, there's nothing exceptional. Mm -hmm. The art is a whole nother part of his character where you're like, this is serial mm -hmm. killers do art like this. Like, I like art. I've never <laughs> done true. art of like blood dripping off a fan. Like, was the fan used as a murder weapon? Like, how did that much blood get on the fan? Why is that the piece of art he needs by his front door every time he exits? He's like, hello, bloody fan. Like, so there is another part of his character that even though he's not verbalizing, is underneath. Mm -hmm. Well, it's probably Stem's reign from the time a bunch of kids had him smash the pigeon with a hammer smash a bird with a hammer i was like holy you know fuck. like boys do but that's the thing just a bunch of kids not a cell phone in sight enjoying the moment makes you think i love the <laughs> i love the bit where she takes him away the bird was dead the bird was mm -hmm. dead but i love the bit when she takes him away and he goes back and he's like i'm not afraid of you and then the the and then the little the boy's just like, oh yeah, <laughs> I will kick your ass. It's great. All the stuff in like with like child Joel, baby Joel, yeah. I love. I'd forgotten the part where they're like getting a bath in the sink yes. together and they're tiny. Oh, God, oh so, 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 so I'm so glad you brought up the sink scene. Yeah. One of the things that uh, Michel Gondry does, he has a background mm. as a music video director. He did uh, mm -hmm. stuff for Bjork, stuff for Beck, stuff for Chemical Brothers, mm -hmm. stuff for White Stripes. And he really believes in solid practical effects. Mm. Good for him. So the kitchen scene, like if you actually, if you look that whole scene with the table, Mm. If you see a faraway shot, the table is this like Dolly-esque spidered out thing. So it's all forced perspective. Mm. The scene in the kitchen was indeed actually a giant human-sized hot tub. Mm. So great. And they have Kate and Jim in it. And it was so warm, Kate fainted. Oh, wow. Why can't a director give her water that's the right temperature? <laughs> because if you're in water too cold, it drains out your body temperature. Mm -hmm. You'll go into shock and you can't deliver the lines. Which Sarah's referring to because mm -hmm. of her time in the, the Titanic tubs. Oh, right. oh, oh, okay. Right, yeah, right? Warm is actually better. It's yeah, never yeah. in the middle. You're either nipples are going to fall off or you're going to faint. Like, those yeah. are the only two options. You have longer with warm, but it was just, she was overworked. She was a little yeah, too, like, right. if I had to be immersed for a movie, you're fucking freezing your ass off or you're in a hot tub. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to take the hot tub. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but she took the hot tub and she fainted. And yeah. I love fanatical creatives. We're mm. just like, we're going to mm -hmm. fucking get the shot. That's what matters. This was so... Michelle's like, get her out, haul the body out, keep filming. And Jim's like, excuse me, the fuck? My co-star just fainted. And Michelle's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But get back in the water. We have to do the scene. And Jim got really mm -hmm. upset. And he was like, excuse mm. me. And he, he admitted, he's like, I went all alpha male and I wanted to protect her. Mm. And he gets out of the hot tub and he's like ready to clock Michelle. And Michelle looks at him and is mm. like, are you going to punch me in the face? And Jim's like, well, no. And Michelle's like, great, get back in the hot tub. We need to finish the scene. Oh my God. The other the other great Michelle Gondry rebuttal to a yelling Jim Carrey in this movie mm. is Jim, if you keep yelling at me, I'm not going to like you. And if I don't like you, I can't direct you. Nice. Which is like an amazing diffusion. <laughs> 
<laughs> Although conversely, and I just learned this by listening to Unspooled, Jim Carrey is like largely under the impression that Michelle Gondry, like for more than a year, manipulated him into staying in a depression to be in this movie. So it's a very fascinating oh, no. battle between the two of That's, them. Hmm. How, how did he do that? So this is fascinating. And again, I'm just repeating stuff I heard Amy Nicholson say. So I don't I don't know uh, how true this is. Uh-huh. But I love Amy Nicholson. So who knows? But the um, Jim Carrey had broken up with Renee Zellweger and had a bad breakup the year prior. Mm-hmm. And he was meeting Michelle Gondry about the role. And Michelle was like, you're so beautiful right now. This is exactly what we're looking for in the movie. Like, hold on to this. <laughs> hold on to yes. this through then. Like, then and then when um, they cast, he refers to his ex several times in the movie. And they cast Ellen Pompeo, who like arguably this time looks exactly and sounds exactly like Renee Zellweger, which he felt like they did by design to like keep depressing him. Yeah. So he was like, so I don't know. It's part of the process. <laughs> Is it? It's uh, respectfully, respectfully. I'm going to say if someone has so much power over you, they can manipulate you into a depression for a solid year. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Carrey, like we think of him as Waka Waka. He is an actor and Mm. actors are loony as a fucking tune. (laughs) So I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff. And when you do a table reading, they had Kate Winslet Mm -hmm. and Jim Carrey meeting for the first time in a restaurant and they were doing lines. And it's, it's like their first date. They're trying to get to know each other. And Jim is like, I was just pouring everything out. I was using it as free therapy. I was completely confessing what was happening. Mm. And there's a scene where he, Jim, because he's an actor, has a Mm -hmm. a tape deck and he puts in the tape and he's playing back things that he'd said into the tape. And one of the things he said is, I hate women. Mm. And Kate Winslet is next to him like, what? Mm. And Jim's like, no, 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 I didn't mean it. I don't hate women. And then he takes the tape player and throws it across the restaurant and you hear it crash on the floor. And then Michelle Gondry, who's like filming, like just like out of the pocket and Kate, who's like there, like what the fuck just happened? And Jim's so committed to the character, he lunges at Kate's Mm -hmm. tits, throws himself in her bosom and starts crying. And Kate's like, okay, we're doing a table read. And she's like patting him. And then she like looks over to Michelle and she's like, "He, he just broke the tape player. And Michelle's like, yeah, I know. And then Jim like comes out of it and is like, oh, whoops, I guess I got carried away. I smashed the tape player. We can go to my house. I have another one. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I get that you're a big, sensitive, emotional, depressed actor, Jim. (laughs) But like you didn't need to like in the middle of a restaurant, pitch it across to the middle of a table read. I feel like going method with whenever you hear about someone who's like exclusively goes method, there's always rage. Yes. Robert Pattinson has pointed this out. Yeah, he's right. Yeah. That it's like it's like if you name any of the big method guys. It feels like rage. Jared Leto's like, let me send you dildos and dead rats. How about just acting? Could you just act? Right. Why get therapy when you can just torture your coworkers, you know? Honestly. Exactly. Sarah, can I ask you a follow-up question to that about the movie? Mm Mm-hmm. Can you tell me your feelings about everything that happened with both Elijah Wood's character and Wilkinson's characters? Like where they're both like trying it on with a coworker or what? <laughs> well, well, just like quasi side plot in this movie is like Elijah Wood's character mm-hmm. uses all the information he gets surreptitiously mm-hmm. from this character in order to manipulate her mm-hmm. into a relationship. Tom Wilkinson, his character 
finds himself i don't know exactly although it's hinted at slightly the dynamic of his relationship with um kirsten dunce's character and he, well they've had an affair before and then she wiped her like in men in black yes there's so i, I would say by way of workplace <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of extremely negative things happening with these characters. I mean, I didn't even really kind of think about that because this is just how relationship plots work in movies when you think about it. And then especially in romantic comedies, like someone is always preying on someone. I stole her underwear. It's really romantic. Yeah. <laughs> it, hey, it was clean, he said in self-defense. <laughs> oh, no. But right, like, the, I think that, like, the low point of romantic comedies, like, also happened around this time, and it was How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. We're just, like, 90s romantic comedies. There's, like, someone is always, like, lying about the other person who's in a coma callback, or they're doing competing things for work about how to destroy each other, or... You know, you're, like, stalking a widower who you heard on talk radio. Like, there's... To me, that's like keeping with the romantic comedy template that most of the relationship dynamics in this movie are screwed up when you think about it. Mm. I think to your point, like if you play any plot point from a romantic comedy straight, mm -hmm. it's unsettling behavior. Elijah Wood is kind of the epitome of that in this movie is like he does all of the things that like if you had a Matthew McConaughey do and like sort of wryly smirk at the camera and say something clever like he would be exonerated and in this you're just like no 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 this is a uh, creepy shit I think that this was at a point in Elijah's career where he was like I don't care that I have a cute little baby face like I'm seeking out in Sin City and also here in Internal Sunshine. He's like, I want to do these fucked up characters. I want to break free from like this, what everyone is seeing me as this like cute twinkle twinkle. And he's like, no, I'm emotionally and mentally manipulating people and stealing their panties. He's a real boy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly that. That's what he was aiming for. You could see it. Give me your panties. Yeah. I'm a real boy who's super fucked up. Yeah. They always say that. I love the story. I just watched The Good Son recently. And oh, I love that when Elijah Wood made it, he was like, what, 11 or 12. And apparently he was like really psyched to be doing it because he was like a horror fan. And it was like very exciting to him that he was in an R-rated movie. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And I'm sure he was like, if you're, if he's like an 11 year old horror fan, he's already sick of being Elijah Wood. Mm hmm. The kid in Jeopardy, <laughs> which I guess he also is in this one, but in a more, in a, you know what I love about the good son, not to tangent, but like if I am a sad, sad mom and I need a special thinking place to go to, I would not have it be on the edge of a fucking cliff. How about that? <laughs> This show's full of lessons. Mm -hmm. It's full of lessons about how to go about your life. <laughs> what else, by way of plot twists and turns, Rain, do you think is worth visiting here? Well, I mean, what Sarah brought up, I, I love the fact that it's like a totally AKA kind of normal, depressing rundown film. And it's like, by the way, whoopsie doopsie, there's this sci-fi aspect where you can get your brain wiped but the actual office is run down. The people in it are totally incompetent. Mm -hmm. You go to do the brain wipe and it's like, this is the best that you have. And it's some dude with a colander over his head while two drunk people who've snarfled all of his booze and are stoned and eating bagels are <laughs> fucking on top of his unconscious film. 
Like, and you're like, oh, it is just all so very ramshackle. And that's great. The plot point with, you know, Elijah Wood being like, oh, I'm a super creeper. I'm not good at relationships. I noticed her while she was unconscious and we were wiping her memory. I went through her drawers. I stole her panties. Don't worry, they were clean. And then I took all of the bag of her memories and I'm using it to manipulate her to get into a relationship. But there's so much else happening. You kind of don't even see that plot point. But you're like, that's there. And like, right. fuck. Talk about vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like this is actually the part of the movie that feels the most real now that you yes. talk about it. Because yes. it's like, because the way that movies like this trip up or, you know, any kind of speculative fiction is being like, what if you could wipe people's memories and it was in the future and mm. everything was shiny and the technicians were super competent. Totally. And yeah. it wasn't just like something that probably there's a subway ad for and they come <laughs> and drink all your booze because it's like the perfect crime because they can yeah. make you forget that you bought any or something. Well, it's like it operates like the TikTok al algorithm in a way where it's like, while well, you weren't paying attention by mm -hmm. looking at all these things and liking all these things, mm. we figured out exactly mm. what you like and we're going to give it to you to form a relationship with you. Shit. Like, <laughs> So TikTok is Elijah Wood. In Eternal Sunshine. What I love, in you brought this up, Sarah, is I feel like every Charlie Kaufman workplace is just a pre-Giuliani New York. Like, that's why it yes. feels like like a quasi-liminal space is that he just brings us, like, it, can be, it's, it takes place in modernity or whatever, but then it, every office space is from, like, 1987 somehow. Well, in 2004, <laughs> it was, like, immediately post-Giuliani as well. Yes. So I think there was still a vibe of, like, is this what we're doing? Yeah, like, <laughs> I love that this office has wood paneling. It just it has a very specific feel and smell. Smell. You love the wood paneling. I grew up in it. Those plot points that I didn't... Re so first of all, I'm watching this movie. I remember loving this movie when it came out. When I'm looking at the opening credits and seeing who's in it, I did not remember any of these people being in this movie. Seeing adorable <laughs> Mark Ruffalo. Oh my God, so good. We have David Cross just being a dick. Classic peak David Cross. Which is all to say, I just rem remembered the A plot of this movie. I just remembered yeah. the primary things that happened in this movie. But... You know, to these points, so much of the flavor beyond that is by way of just knowing how ramshackle mm -hmm. this operation is. Mm -hmm. Everyone is so flawed. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not just like a little flawed. They're really bad at their jobs. They still do it, though, incredibly. It's like we, we take place in a world where like these guys like they didn't invent memory wiping technology. They're just kind of like doing it badly. Like it's a laser hair removal place that's going to get fined. Think about all the things like laser hair removal we just let people do. Mm -hmm. We're like, you can do it. I, I'm never going to like look up your certification. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you have a store that's so official. Why do you think, I mean, outside of the details that we've all talked about, but like, why is it so moving? Like, why, why is it a movie that sticks with you? I mean, there are plenty of things that like transcend Hollywood expectations. Like, why is this one one that I know when we announce it's coming out, people are going to be fucking stoked about? Why is that? Mm -hmm. Obviously, it resonates with me and it's resonated with a lot of people. The fact that it felt more realistic, despite your whole like, hey, laser hair removal, brain removal, like, is this causing brain damage? Yeah, it's on par with a night of heavy drinking. Like, 
I don't know why it spoke to me. Like you wouldn't say that natural born killers is particularly inspiring. And I walked out of that, like levitating on a different level of consciousness. Sometimes something just speaks to your core. And Mm. for whatever reason, this was just one of those movies that I've never been able to get out of my psyche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I make a pitch? Mm, Please. You in a layered way, Rain, I I know Sarah and I in in pretty specific ways, we are all, I would say, extreme, extremely neurodivergent people. (laughs) Guilty. And I think at least this and Natural Born Killers, by way of like giving me something to hold on to narratively in a way that like a lot of movies, Mm. like, like even just straight movies of like, there's point A, point B, point C, it's over or whatever. Mm -hmm. I remember when I started discovering movies that had narrative layers and Mm -hmm. had aesthetic layers, like Mm -hmm. those were godsends to me because they had the elements I needed for them to settle into my brain. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point that I really did not think of until you just said it 15 seconds ago. (laughs) I am Mm -hmm. neurodivergent as fuck. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that could be, I was like, why? Why? But yeah, okay, fair, valid. I don't want to give it all that, but I think it's big. And I think that that was my response to being John Malkovich, too. Yes. Yeah, tell me about that, Sarah. I mean, I guess that it, it feels like a similar experience. I remember just feeling like this really euphoric sense of like, you know, and this is how everyone felt about it to an extent, because it was considered this very new and exciting thing where the premise is that there's a portal to John Malkovich's brain inside of an office building in New York, and you can be in his brain for about 15 minutes, and then he gets spat out onto the New Jersey Turnpike, <laughs> and John Cusack is, like, trying to figure out how to, like, manipulate this to his own advantage. And his wife is played by that dog, Cameron Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm always kind of referencing this experience where like, okay, so like something that I find annoying in entertainment is that like the companies that finance things or that distribute things, like very rarely will they take a chance on what is in terms of what happens to our like eyeballs and earballs and brains, like a new flavor. Mm -hmm. It's like being John Malkovich was a new flavor. It's like how now everyone can't get enough of Ube. It's been around forever. Some people have always known about it, but suddenly everything is Ube. And like, that's being John Malkovich. And we can see in how like flavor works commercially. I think the same thing happens in entertainment where like people go nuts for a flavor that suddenly is like, hits the mainstream in a way it hasn't before. And then rather than trying to come up with another new flavor and being like, hey, people like new things, everyone's like Ube. Everything this year is Ube. More Marvel movies for you. More Marvel (laughs) movies. Oh, my God. (laughs) Although I am excited about that Ant-Man one. But (laughs) it's a very tasty flavor. I get it. Paul Rudd, yeah, always tasty. But to me, being John Malkovich was a brand new flavor. And I've, you know, and it was also like a layered flavor. It was something that kind of suggested new ways to be creative in a way that was extremely exciting to me. And also I was like... 13, which is a very exciting time to be watching movies. If you have a 13-year-old, hooray, you get to introduce them to so many great movies. And then I don't know about how to do the other stuff. Sorry. Oh, my God. Show them Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. Yes. 
Another solid life takeaway. <laughs> 13-year-old movie. <laughs> and Dirty Dancing. Yes. Oh, my God. So what? What is there anything that we want to touch on before we get into uh, uh, concluding questions? I, I mean, I, I think that we already discussed it. Like, for me, like, the biggest takeaway is that hope is still in the box. Yeah. <laughs> the line read I love in this movie is, um, this is it, Joel. It's all going to be gone soon. What do we do? And she says, enjoy it. His memory of her says that. And I love that yeah. so much. I my, my two takeaways are, one, I think now more than ever, we need to be reminded that everyone's fucked up. And mm-hmm. like, that's not the litmus test. The litmus test is, are you trying actively to get better? Or are you mm-hmm. trying to get as better as you can and create the least amount of harm? Like, I think that that's the whole thing. Like, it's easy to position yourself against like today's most fucked up person. It's difficult mm-hmm. to like get better in increments. And so I like that this leaves that open on the table. And, and the one thing we haven't said, but I think maybe we haven't said it because it's just so we uh, ideally it's so evident is Kate Winslet is remarkable. She always is. Kate Winslet's performance in this movie in all movies always and from Titanic to Mare of Easttown is, is so tremendous and she plays a character that I've known, not just in the thing that I said earlier where I'm like, you could fix it, but in the like absolutely lovable, but still totally in their own fucking way, dealing maybe with some mental health and substance abuse issues, whatever, but like is still just like a joy and sometimes exhausting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I She just fucking killed it. She's so good. This character is incredible. And I think that Clementine as a character is as much a reason that people remember and love this movie as its uh, appeal to the neurodivergent crowd. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we don't... There are no actual father so usually the way this question is framed is we know that so and so's the father who is the daddy there are no fathers in this movie which mm-hmm. may be a preview of what's to come who then <laughs> in your view is the daddy rain why don't you kick us off okay so when i saw this question i got very very excited because i fucking love daddies what <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. And this movie has none. None. There are no daddies in the house. And if you look at Charlie Kaufman's work, it is a bit short in daddies. (laughs) There is a daddy shortage. And the closest that you could say that this movie ostensibly has as a daddy is Dr. Howard. Mm -hmm. But he's not. He's this Mm -hmm. like bumbling, like, I'll fix your brain, but also I'll be banging my secretary. Whoopsie doopsie. But also I won't even do that very well. I won't even do that well. There's no daddy energy to him laying pipe on a secretary. Like, there's just not. So I think that occasionally a movie doesn't have a daddy. And as much as I do love me some daddies, there ain't one in this movie. And that's okay. There doesn't always have to be a daddy. Hmm. Yeah. This is our first abstention, I think. This is good. We very occasionally talk about, Sarah, I've said, I think on a couple of times we've kind of agreed that like tonally something has been a daddyless universe. But Mm -hmm. this is, yeah, this is uh, the first person who's just like, nope. And I love it. Well, we've agreed that there's that things take place in a daddyless universe, but then people are like, but the daddy is Greg. But this is the yeah, first yeah, yeah. like no vote. I love it. Yes. 
I'm going to say that the daddy is Long Island because, as I pointed out to you before, Alex, there aren't a lot of movies set on Long Island, really, and this is one of them. Okay. And it's like the tonal father of all of this because it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I really I really love Long Island as a place that's kind of like the backstage for the sublime in many ways. Mm-hmm. And it just fits huh. for the setting, and I like it. I have difficulty identifying a daddy. I love thinking about the fact that the Kaufman universe is daddyless. And I love, I mean, the first daddy that comes to mind in the Kaufman universe is a literal John Malkovich, who hmm. is, it's funny thinking about this man who's a stand in for Charlie Kaufman wanting to be John Malkovich. I'm better <laughs> like, than ever. You fuckers. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so good. I think just aesthetically. You're picking someone from another movie? <laughs> no, no, no. How much of a Charlie Kaufman move is that? Okay, yeah. No, no, I'm not picking someone from another movie. I'm saying just aesthetically, just yeah. from a thirst standpoint alone, mm-hmm. Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo's character is irredeemable. Another one of the people who are irredeemable. But this is... 13 going on 30 hot Mark Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. And it's before he starts to have the age to him, which makes him look like a different kind of daddy, like a mm-hmm. daddy daddy. But I just, I like it. I like looking at him. I almost picked Mark when he's in his underwear dancing, like with Mary. And I'm yeah. like, okay. But I'm also like, he's a total fuck up. He's drinking on the job. He's too mm-hmm. busy banging someone to actually wipe someone's memories. And I'm like, you're not a daddy. You're a fuck up older brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. True. His character, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of bangability, yes. <laughs> so this was fabulous. Rain, thank you for bringing us this movie. How do you want people to find you when they're done listening if they don't already know about your your glory? Uh, I am I have a website that's got the podcast and it has the advice column and various articles and whatever classes I'm teaching. And I'm also uh, Rain Gray on all social media because I have an advice column. If you listen to this and you're like, I got some questions, uh, you just might be in an advice column. Just go to raindegray.com and I've got a contact form and you can ask me questions. Nice. Don't send me pictures of your dick. I don't. <laughs> I think we should. I think every guest should say that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they pretty much look the same. I hate to break it to you like men are convinced. This one's special. All you have to do is look at it and you will fall to your knees in a digmatized trance because this is the magic wand. They all look the same, baby. I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. There's not that much variability. I think Rain is the daddy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I am the daddy. Seconded. You're the daddy. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Rain DeGray for joining us. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the transitions on our show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. Thanks for making this whole thing possible. Thank you for listening. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. And please consider joining us next week where we will talk about Rosemary's Baby with the great Sarah Archer. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good.